Welcome to Driving Forces. I'm your host, Jeff Simmons, and I thank you for tuning in to WBAI today. You were just listening for the last hour to an amazing conversation on Let's Talk with John Kane and Regan DeLogans. It was an incredible conversation, really interesting. It was about white percent, supremacy, the death of George Floyd in Minneapolis, the incident in Central Park involving Amy Cooper, where she called the cops on a black man who uh, asked just to unleash, uh, to leash her dog. Uh, I, I encourage you, if you tune into WBAI for this show religiously, to start an hour earlier whenever you can, because uh, John and Regan really are insightful. Uh, and for me, I like listening to WBAI throughout the day to hear a diverse amount of programming as well as the news. You just heard the news a few moments ago, and I'll give you a few more updates. Uh, but something that was just mentioned, which is making news, is about what this reopening is going to look like and what the our city and state officials are doing uh, to move us towards reopening. As you just heard in that news report, the city council is now pushing to expand outdoor dining. And I'll ask... Uh, our second guest today, New York City Council Member Justin Brannon, about that uh, in the second half hour of the show. This is an extended driving forces today. I'll be with you through 6.30, and in the um, extra half hour, I do have a very special guest uh, who's going to talk with us about the death of Larry Kramer. Uh, this is a noted author who I've known for years and had on the show before, and he had interviewed uh, Mr. Kramer a number of years ago, and he's going to share his insights uh, about that interview. Before we get to uh, the first guest today, New York State Senator Andrew Gennardis, just a few more updates. I mean, we are in the 10th week, if you can believe it, the 10th week of this lockdown here in New York City. We have hit a grim milestone. John's Hop John Hopkins University's pandemic tracker uh, shows that the deaths in our country have now exceeded 100,000. Uh, and worldwide, that's over 356,000 fatalities. Here in New York, uh, there, it's been reported more than 23,000, getting close to 24,000 total statewide deaths of New Yorkers who tested positive for COVID-19. Yesterday, there were 74 uh, more fatalities. And it's important to look at that number uh, because that is one of the key numbers when the number of fatalities each day is significantly lower under a certain amount where we that will lead us towards more of a reopening here. However, in more troubling news, another 2.1 million new unemployment claims were filed last week, according to the Labor Department. Uh, that pushed the total over 40 million since this pandemic uh, grabbed a hold of us in mid-March. Think about it. That's one in four Americans that have filed for unemployment. Now, uh, near, uh, nearly 200,000 more New Yorkers, when we go to New York, filed new unemployment claims in the week that ended la last week on the 23rd. Uh, and that's according to the Federal Department of Labor, too. Uh, New York City. We are the only region in the state that has not begun reopening. And Mayor de Blasio today held another news conference, and you'll hear a little about that also uh, when Linda Perry gives our news report at the top of 6 o'clock. Uh, but he said he expects the city to enter the first reopening stage within the next two weeks. Of course, this is when the city meets state requirements on hospital capacity and total infections, as, as I had mentioned. Once that happens, the city is going to have to get ready to accommodate about 200,000 to 400,000 more people heading back to work each day. It's going to be interesting to see how businesses adjust to this. 
So with that, I want to go to what our state legislators are doing. They're back in session as of this week. That brings me to my first guest, New York State Senator Andrew Gennardis, who was first elected in November of 2008. He represents New York's 22nd State Senate District. That includes the neighborhoods of Bay Ridge, Diker Heights, Bensonhurst, Bath Beach, Gravesend, Gerritsen Beach, Manhattan Beach, and Marine Park. He chairs the Committee on Civil Service and Pensions, and he's passed key legislation you may have heard about, which expanded services to 9-11 heroes and promoted street safety. Now, as I mentioned, state lawmakers are back in session uh, this week, including today. And the reason I wanted to have the senator on and then the second guest, Justin Brandon from the New York City Council, was because recently they had a really interesting column in the Gotham Gazette called No to Austerity, Yes to Efficiency and Fairness, Getting Our Budget Priorities Straight for a Strong Post-COVID New York. Senator Gennardis, welcome back to WBAI. Thank you. It's great to be here with you, Jeff. So talk to me about the, and I'm quoting your, your article, the tough decision, tough budget decisions that are ahead. Talk a little about that. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, anyone who, who's following, uh, you know, our response and, and the, out, the, the fallout from the COVID outbreak knows that both the city and state are in dire fiscal straits. I mean, we're talking about at the state level, you know, $16, $20 billion shortfall, long-term planning. The city right now, I think, came out with updated numbers, $9 billion budgetary shortfall uh, because of a significant drop-off in tax revenue. So we know that we're going to have to make some really serious choices uh, in the weeks, uh, months, and even years ahead. And, you know, our message that the councilman and I put out was, you know, this is a moment for us to kind of reset our budget priorities and really focus in on what are the essential services that we have to, uh, we can't do without, that we have to fine-tune and perfect. Uh, where are the areas that we can raise revenue, significant revenue to help us fund uh, the essentials of, of city and state government? And what does, what does government service even look like in a post-COVID world? Um, you know, but the reality is we're not going to raise, you know, $15 billion, $15 billion worth of state taxes in one year to close a, a shortfall, we're not going to raise $9 billion of city taxes in one year to close a shortfall. So we have to make some really smart and tough decisions and use every tool at our disposal, revenue increases, and some targeted budget cuts, smart planning for the future to really get through this moment. And when you talk about revenue increases and tax cuts, are there specific areas that you would look towards? Uh, you know, the, First of all, I think everything's got to be on the table in terms of revenue increases. You know, we, it was a big, big effort this year at the state level to uh, increase state revenue by passing, uh, you know, tax increases on ultramillionaires and billionaires, uh, large corporations that kind of evade state taxes right now, uh, people who are buying multi-million dollar condos that they're living in for only a couple weeks a year, really t- focusing in on the, you know, the, the, the top of the top who can afford to pay their fair share. Uh, then the coronavirus hit and all of that momentum kind of, you know, fell out of our sales because we had an emergency budget we had to pass. But I think that those ideas are still very much on the table. Uh, you know, Senator Ramos has a great bill to tax wealth of billionaires, accrue wealth of billionaires, that um, I think is really, really interesting and really worth consideration uh, among many other bills that are out there. Uh, so that's definitely on the table for sure. And we have to be creative about where we're looking for revenue um, and really think about what 
you know, how, what are the what is the current tax system incentivized, and how can we rebalance it so that it's fair and equitable for everyone? Uh, you know, tax breaks for luxury condos that don't that are sitting empty right now might not be so smart, you know, anymore when we have record numbers of homeless people in our streets and people who are about to be homeless because they can't pay their rent because they've lost their income and they're worried about what happens after the rent mor- the eviction moratorium expires. Like those are the types of things need to be really, really focusing in on, uh, you know, uh, in the and like I said, in the weeks and months ahead. And in fact, one of the reasons I wanted to have you back on the show was I had seen your news release yesterday, your proposed legislation, uh, uh, which would provide a certain type of relief. Can you talk about that? Sure. So one of the things, look, the, the reality is we know that the city and state are, are hurting from a fiscal perspective, but so are the people who make up the city and state. And whether you are a renter and you're, you know, you're struggling to pay your rent because you lost your job, or you're a homeowner who you know, likewise lost their job and is struggling to pay their mortgage and their property tax, uh, everyone needs some type of housing relief right now. And what we need, I think, is you know, more flexibility in the system to give people a fighting chance to catch up. So, um, you know, we're working on some, we worked on, in fact, we're passing today an emergency rental relief bill, which is a, you know, a small step forward to help folks who need rental relief. It doesn't go nearly far enough, but it's a, it's a significant down payment towards relief, $100 million uh, for emergency rental assistance. Separately, I propose a bill to say that if you can't pay your property taxes on time because you've lost your income, or maybe you own a two-family home and your tenants is not able to pay you rent, and so you're depending on that rent to pay your taxes, and you can't make a payment, you should not have to pay an exorbitant interest rate penalty because you're not able to pay your property tax. Right now in the city of New York, if you have a home, it's about 7% interest rate. If you own a a property assessed over $250,000, you pay an 18% interest rate. We're talking like credit card levels here. Um, So I I propose a bill to, to eliminate the interest rate for people who can't pay their property taxes specifically because of a COVID financial hardship. Uh, and I've also written to the mayor and the speaker about that and, and urged them to take that step on their own, which they have the power to do. And another issue, I mean, this was front page of the New York Times today uh, about e- e- evictions, that temporary government assistance has been helping, but evictions are soon going to be allowed uh, in about half of the states. Do you think the rent suspension, the moratorium that was extended until uh, the midsummer uh, is enough? What, el- what other measures do you think are needed to protect tenants in the state? Well, you know, it's 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 something, but it definitely is not enough. We actually passed a bill yesterday that would extend the moratorium and and also say that anyone who is in rent arrears because of a COVID financial hardship um, could not be evicted because of non-payment. They, they would still owe the rent, but it would be a financial judgment that a landlord could bring against them. They would not be in jeopardy of losing their home uh, or the roof over their head just because they fell behind. Because the reality is, you know, it's great to have an eviction moratorium, but what we don't want is the day after the moratorium's over, landlords all of a sudden saying, okay, great, now you owe me six months of rent by tomorrow. Like that's an unrealistic and unreasonable expectation. So we want to protect those folks, make sure that they are not uh, in danger of losing their home. And that bill passed the Senate yesterday. I believe it passed the Assembly yesterday as well and is going to the governor's desk for uh, signature. 
So as we move towards reopening and other regions already have started this in New York State, how do you how do you strike a balance? What are you hearing from the businesses in your district and also uh, individuals, people about relaxing on social distancing measures? I think, uh, you know, it's great that you're actually having Justin on after me because he wrote a great op-ed in the Brooklyn paper about this uh, just this week. Um, you know, people are obviously getting frustrated. They're they're reaching quarantine fatigue, um, especially those in our business community. Um, you know, if you look at it, the, the, the guidance we've gotten from an objective perspective, it can feel pretty arbitrary. You know, why can a big box store be deemed essential, but then a store that sells the same goods, but it's a smaller store, is deemed non-essential and has to close down? And have to put their employees on, um, you know, on furlough. Uh, it doesn't make sense. How come some businesses are considered essential and others are not? Um, and you know, you could do this for a couple of weeks, but after time, people are really starting to get antsy. So I think we need much more clear guidance as to, you know, what the, you know, how we can safely reopen, what the steps are, and also just a better understanding of what the risks are that we all face. Um, we're not gonna, we're not doing this because we believe that we're gonna eradicate coronavirus in the next you know, by phase one of reopening, we, you know, it's not about that. It's about giving our healthcare system enough time to build up capacity. And so now that we've done that, what are the acceptable levels of risk on a sliding scale moving forward, depending on, you know, how the virus is going, that we should know how to live with and live with and, 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 you know, live amongst each other with. And so uh, that's kind of the crucial bit of information that I think has been lacking so far that I think we really need to be honing in on. One of the more troubling uh, results that we have seen have been a significant number of deaths in our nursing homes uh, in the state. You had announced uh, with Assemblymember Ron Kim that you would introduce legislation to set new regulations for nursing homes in the wake of this. Talk a little about that. Yeah, great. So this is, uh, you know, every day it feels like the, the stories coming out of our nursing homes are just more and more heart-wrenching. Um, and you know, with you know thousands of deaths coming out of our nursing homes, um, it, there really needs to be a full investigation into what happened in these homes. And, you know, um, part of it, I think, was the, the mistaken guidance by the state to say that nursing homes had to accept COVID patients. That's clearly a mistake in hindsight. That's why that policy was, was uh, overturned or reversed. But also nursing homes that have not been transparent or honest or accountable to their patients, to the families of patients, to elected officials, to government officials, in some cases just you know misleading the public about what was happening behind their doors. So Ron Kim and I, Assembly Member Ron Kim and I have proposed legislation that would hold these homes accountable, hold them to certain specific metrics and standards that they have to meet, require them to keep adequate PPE on supply. So not you know desperately sourcing out private donations from the neighborhood because they don't have that in their supply closets, which is baffling to me, um, but also put a really, really heavy stick in play and say, if you are not complying and if you are withholding information, we are going to set up a process to have you lose your license to operate and set up a state takeover of the nursing home um, and, and put you out of business. Because at the end of the day, it's about protecting some of our most vulnerable uh, constituents and residents, and, and they have not been protected so far. So obviously, being back in session, there are a number of measures that you and your colleagues have been taking up regarding uh, COVID-19. One thing that I found interesting, I had read this online a little earlier this afternoon, is that the issue of masks even took on greater significance uh, during, uh, during certain legislative debates today on a bill that would repeal 
1845 ban on wearing masks in public places. A number of Republican lawmakers were opposing this. Uh, you know, what's your reaction to this debate? It just seems commonsensical right now that, you know, people need to be able to wear masks out in public. I mean, Jeff, you said it perfectly well. You said it exactly right. <laughs> uh, if we, um, you know, if we are going to be living in a future where we, we're going to be wearing masks and the government's going to be telling us to wear masks, reasonably so, for everyone's health and, and well-being, um, then you can't have a law on the books that makes it a crime to be out on the street wearing a mask. It just defies logic. So that's what this bill does. Um, you know, I thought you were going to go in a different direction with the question because while they were debating this bill, a number of our Republican colleagues took their masks off in the chamber to debate the bill about not being penalized for wearing a mask, which, you know, is just further confounding um, because you are at most risk of contaminating the air around you when you are speaking. So multiple times during this during the debate uh, yesterday and today, we had to remind our colleagues that they have to wear a mask when you're speaking, because that's the whole point of wearing a mask in the first place. So uh, thankfully, logic prevailed, common sense prevailed on that bill. We were able to pass it. And like a lot of the other bills that we have passed uh, yesterday and today, we'll be going to the governor's desk for signature uh, as soon as possible. We've got just a few minutes left, and you know I do want to be able to talk about the legislative, you know, session that has resumed. That it's not all about COVID nineteen, or is it? Are there other priorities, things that you think need to be addressed this session that have really been backburnered or not gotten enough attention right now because of the pandemic? Um, you know, I, I think you know the answer to that's always going to be yes. Uh, there's no, there's no shortage of things that I think are are really important and. You know, one of the big, uh, you know, things I think we should all keep in mind is that we are in an urgent situation right now, but we should never let the urgent crowd out the important. Um, you know, I think there are a lot of COVID adjacent issues that, you know, the COVID crisis really highlighted and magnified the need to be focusing on. Nursing homes is definitely one of them. That was a problem. Even nursing home accountability was a problem. Even before COVID, COVID just uh, highlighted that. I think the need for revenue raisers for both the city and state um, was a, was was existed before, and obviously the COVID budget crunch has highlighted that significantly. Uh, unemployment, there were gaps in the unemployment system that existed before COVID um, that I think need to be taken up now because COVID has exposed those gaps. I have a bill that would allow someone who has to voluntarily separate from their job because of a health risk or because of a health and safety risk to be eligible for unemployment. This way someone doesn't have to put their life at jeopardy in order to um, keep working or keep getting a paycheck. Uh, I think we should take that bill up. I think that's you know, something that's really, really necessary. Um, and there's a host of other things as well that I think are on the table. Um, I, I think everything's going to be, COVID has changed everything. Uh, our healthcare system, our you know distribution of technology, the shortcomings of our education system, the shortcomings of our, you know, um, the inequities that exist, the racial and social and economic inequities that exist you know, in our society have been magnified in every possible way through COVID. And so really, we need to come back and reassess everything to a COVID frame and a COVID lens. And I've got just about a minute left. I do want to ask about the governor's response because he had extremely high approval ratings. They've dipped a little, but they're still generally very high. How would you assess his response to this? I think on the whole, the governor has done a good job leading us through a, you know, a very, very difficult crisis. I think um, you know, some decisions 
um, you know, were made in the heat of the moment that I think were clearly erroneous. The, the nursing home, you know, uh, decision being an example of that. Um, but on the whole, I would give the governor good marks. We need steady leadership during a crisis like this. We need steady and, and truthful and honest information uh, that I think the governor has done a great job of providing, especially in contrast to what we've seen come out of the White House and the lack of a national plan and a national response from the White House. Um, on, on that, on, on those marks, the governor gets uh, you know high grades from me. And finally, if people want to learn more about, oh wait, you know what? Before I forget, I should say this. I want to give you a chance uh, that uh, you do have for people in your district. You do have a uh, a mass distribution coming up this weekend. I saw. That's actually that's right. We are giving out masks in Marine Park this Sunday at twelve noon. First come, first serve. Uh, we'll be there until we run out of supplies. It's masks and hand sanitizer. So if you live in the Marine Park area, please come by the Carmine Caro Center, and we will see you there And uh, from a socially distant uh, way, of course. And that's at 3000 Fillmore Avenue in Brooklyn. Senator Andrew Gennardis, how can people learn more about you and your work? You can uh, follow our social media. I'm, I'm on Twitter at A. Gennardis, uh, Facebook at um, Senator Gennardis. Um, or you can check out my website, senatorgenardis.nyc. Actually, I did check your Twitter. So as I close, I want to say to you, happy anniversary. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> Senator, thanks so much for joining me here. Thank you, Jeff. Be well. Stay safe. So you've been listening to Driving Forces on WBAI 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. I'm your host, Jeff Simmons, and I was just talking with New York State Senator Andrew Gennardis. Coming up in the second half hour, you're going to hear from New York City Council Member Justin Brannan, who we've had on the show before, and he'll talk a little about how the city has re been responding, what he agrees with, what he disagrees with. We've got a lot of good questions for him. So as I get ready to uh, toss over to a segment by Celeste Katz, and I'll get to that in just a moment. I do want to thank you for tuning in this afternoon. I know the weather is better, even though it's a little, well, a little, it's a lot muggy today. Um, but as we're heading outside in this weather, uh, I hope you can find ways to continue to listen to WBAI, even when you're driving or walking around. Uh, if you're streaming us live at WBAI.org, uh, it means a lot to me. And I want to thank uh, those who've been contributing uh, Linda Perry let me know. I don't have his name in front of me, but uh, a gentleman had contributed during the show last week and in recognition of driving forces. So I want to say thank you uh, so much for doing that. It means a lot to keep us on the air. We've been doing this, uh, not me, but BAI has been on the air for 60 years now. And one thing we have where you can show your support is called a BAI buddy. I am a BAI buddy. I like being a BAI buddy. I like showing off my BAI pride by carrying around my uh, BAI tote bag. That's important to me. Being a BAI buddy is very easy. And I'm just asking if you can, it would be fantastic. I know times are tough right now. What you do is you can give a sustaining contribution. I set it up on my credit card. It just gets on there each month. I don't even think about it. I think about BAI, but I want to make sure I give a contribution every month to keep BAI on the air. So there are multiple ways you can do this. If you uh, have a moment and you would like to call our call center, that number is 516-620-3602. Again, that number is 516-620-3602. You can also just go online. Uh, very easy as well. The website address you use is give to, that is the number two, give to WBAI.org. 
And one other way you could do it, just text. If you're on your phone, text WBAI to 41444. Then you get some prompts on your smartphones. It's easy to just go through that. Again, that's texting WBAI to 41444. So I mentioned Celeste Katz. She has been doing a fantastic job chronicling the lives of New Yorkers from all walks of life about how the COVID-19 pandemic has been affecting them. She's talked with people in healthcare and education and several elected officials like Scott Stringer and New York City Council member Danny Drum. In this week's installment, she talked with a teaching artist whose family is from Wuhan about what she's been going through. Let's play that segment. You're listening to WBAI New York. I'm Celeste Katz-Marston. This is New York in Crisis, WBAI's Coronavirus Diary. My name is Ling Tang. I live in Astoria, Queens. I am a dancer, teacher, and arts manager. I'm originally from Wuhan, um, but for the past 17 years, I've been living in the U.S., so we're still very close, connected to our family there. A four-generation household, age 4 to 94, is stranded at home. So from New York, we made frequent calls to find out how everyone's doing because the situation was getting worse. And each week, a family there would send us videos and photos of their at-home activities, from singing, dancing, poetry reading, cooking, and they even celebrated my grandma's 94th birthday. It was amazing to see how they were able to stay so calm, spirited, and healthy during the entire lockdown. But it's hard to believe that weeks later, from Wuhan to New York, we are now experiencing the crisis ourselves. Since New York under pause, I lost all my teachings and performances. That includes uh, several school residencies and seniors in the programs, performances as part of the Asian Heritage Month celebration, Queens International Children's Festival, and so on. Many Lunar New Year events was canceled across the city in January and February due to the early panic among the Chinese American communities. So I was kind of prepared for something worse coming. Since um, schools were closed, I taught one week of virtual lessons for the Flashing Town Hall at Home program and gave a few other workshops online. However, with New York uh, DOE's restrictions on video conferencing, I was not always allowed to see students live on the screen, which was especially challenging for dance instructions. Um, some of the dance props I use because I teach traditional Chinese dance are culturally unique, such as long silk ribbons and fans. I had students use home materials such as scarves, pencils, magazines to DIY their dance props. So they could follow me along when they were uh, in quarantine at home as a first generation immigrant. Having gone through many difficulties pursuing a better life in America, whether it's family separation, learning the language, getting degrees and jobs, and earning green card and citizenship, every step was not easy. So what I have learned from past experience is that so when crisis is here, when there's tension, 
against our uh, like community. I remember there are places in the world where people still struggling, still don't have democracy, don't have freedom of speech. So somehow I feel that it's fortunate to be a New Yorker and to be an Asian American here. And uh, especially in New York, it's a tough city full of energy. And we are surrounded by diverse cultures. Um, there are many people like us. So even during this worst time, like right now, I can see some hope. Ling Tong is a dancer and educator who lives in Queens. Stay tuned for more installments of New York in Crisis, WBAI's Coronavirus Diary, and for the latest news and updates on COVID-19. So that was our Celeste Katz Marston. Um, I encourage you to visit our website, WBAI.org, to check out all of her interviews. They're just really poignant and, and, and emotional, and you're going to hear a diversity of voices. You've been listening to Driving Forces on WBAI 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. I'm your host, Jeff Simmons. We're, this is an extended Driving Forces. I'll be on until uh, 6.30 tonight, coming up in about a half hour. Uh, I will be bringing you, after Linda Perry's news segment, I'll bring bringing you a discussion with Eric Marcus, who will talk to me about his interview with Larry Kramer and about Larry Kramer's legacy. So I'd like to now get to my next guest, New York City Council member Justin Brannon, who represents the neighborhoods of Bay Ridge, Diker Heights, Bensonhurst, and Bath Beach. The council member was born and raised in Brooklyn, the son of a record salesman and early childhood educator. Uh, he graduated from PS 185 McKinley Junior High School and Xavierian High School uh, and studied journalism at Fordham University before becoming a professional musician, which we talked about when he was last on our show earlier this year. Um, while working at a New York City radio station, so props to him for being in radio, he got involved in union organizing and fought to recover unpaid wages for his co-workers. And then he then served as chief of staff to his predecessor, uh, New York City Council member Vinnie Gentili, and director of intergovernmental affairs at the Department of Education, where he helped to oversee the expansion of universal pre-K. He is a longtime believer in the importance of making government work efficiently to create opportunities for working and middle class families, and he represents Brooklyn's 43rd Council District. Councilman uh, Brannon, welcome back to WBAI. Hey, Jack. Thanks so much for having me back on, man. How you doing? I'm doing well. So, Andrew Gennardis uh, and you had penned this column in the Gotham Gazette, and I talked to the senator about it. In that article, you had said you need an honest assessment of how we can raise revenues by looking to those who can afford to pay their fair share. So what are some of the practical solutions? Well, I mean, look, I think we could start by scaling back on some of the massive property tax breaks um, that EDC awarded to high-end properties in Hudson Yards. We could certainly start there. Um, it costs hundreds of millions of dollars a year, and they benefit only a handful of billionaire developers who I don't think are really hurting too much right now. But I think, look, I think overall, um, you know, the, the the crisis that we're in right now is really gonna. We have no. It has no choice but to focus us on what uh, truly matters and, and really getting back to basics as far as our budget is concerned, and making sure that uh, the budget is. You know, look, it's, there's going to be a lot of tough choices that we're going to have to make, and there's going to be some really brutal 
budget cuts and some super tough decisions, but we have to make sure that, you know, our safety net is protected and that, you know, that uh, working people and, and uh, vulnerable New Yorkers, folks who typically slip through the cracks, don't slip through the cracks. You know, we have to make sure that uh, basic city services are, are there and, and, and that folks that need our help are, are still going to get help no matter what's going on. Um, but it's, it's going to require a lot of, uh, a lot of tough decisions and, um, you know, but we're ready for it, you know, that this is what we signed up to do. So. And so when, when the mayor talks about how we have, you know, we're going to have a serious deficit, uh, I believe he said it was $9 billion, if I'm correct, and you please correct me if I'm wrong on any of this. Um, you know, where do you look? I mean, there's issues such as the summer youth employment program where there's been debate over whether to uh, restore that. Where are some of the areas do you think we should look? Well, I mean, you know, look, I think the budget has completely blown up um, since th- th- this mayor got into office. You know, um, I think we need to, you know, we need to reject the choice that there's this binary choice between an austerity budget and and balancing this budget on, on the on the backs of the folks who were, were the most impacted and who are still being impacted by this moment that we're in. Um, I think we can get to a place where uh, we have a budget that shows the values of, of our city and it shows that we're gonna we're gonna fight for folks who, who are normally left out and we're gonna fight for the folks in the back of the room who aren't always at the table at the table you know at this stuff. But um, you know I think there there is a way to make sure that this budget lifts up those who need it most. But it's gonna mean cutting out a lot of waste and a lot of the automatic spending, um, a lot of the bloat that's there. Um, you know, and, and I think that there's a a lot of stuff there. There's a lot of spending that's happening that we're just not even paying attention to. I think when things are great and, and no one's paying attention, no one's minding the store, you know. Um, and I think that now um, that, that we're going to have to really zoom in on this stuff. Um, this is when you know you're going to have to put our money where our mouth is, and we're going to have to make sure that we are focusing on purely, purely the basics and, and the, the fundamental stuff. Um, but there is a ton, a ton of waste there. We did not put away enough money when we should have. Um, you know, saving money uh, for a rainy day has never been a sexy thing. Um, you know, I've tried hard to make saving money sexy, but I'm, you know, sometimes I'm the only guy in the room saying it. You know, there's been a lot of waste. I think one of the reasons I've always pushed to increase the city's rainy day fund is because we have to prepare for the worst when things couldn't be better. Um, and I think, you know, our city ultimately, once we get through this moment, we're going to have to make saving money for dark days sexy again. And we're going to have to remember that we need to prepare for the worst when things couldn't be better. That's got to be our top priority. And when I worked for a New York City controller, Bill Thompson, we often pushed that we wanted there to be a rainy day fund. This is, uh, you know, before I was out of office at the end, uh, in early 2010. Something else that we also did amid the struggling economy uh, around that time was the controller had basically said everyone in our uh, controller's administration making above a certain amount of pay is, is not going to get a raise. He, he cut us. Uh, for a certain period of time. Do you think that the mayor right now should take a pay cut as well as other senior administration officials? Well, I think it'd certainly be a good sign of solidarity. I mean, with so many people out of work, uh, so many people losing their jobs, I don't think anybody should be getting a raise right now, certainly. Um, you know, um, but it, it, would, it would certainly send a good message. You know, look, I think a lot of these conversations become 
You can see it both ways, right? You're talking about fractions uh, of money, but this stuff adds up after a while, and eventually um, you get to a point where you're st you're starting to, you know, have what you need, you know. Um, but I think it's it, this is going to be a real gut check, and it's going to it's going to require a lot of creative solutions, you know. Um, I'm supporting uh, a plan that that my my Republican colleague Councilman Borelli has put forward as far as um, you know retirement incentives for senior workers, you know, um, you know, trying to find ways to uh, cut costs in this new reality. So we're now in this period where people are urging that regions reopen. Uh, new York City's moving towards that. What are you hearing from the constituents and businesses in your area? And I will say, I watched a video of yours the other day. I've, you've been on my mind since then, since you got across the message about wearing masks. Um, so I'm with <laughs> you on that. I'm with you on that. Right. Um, look, I think, you know, look, I think for... The past three months, New Yorkers have obediently gone through hell. You know, um, thousands of people have lost loved ones. Um, thousands of people have lost jobs. Some people have lost both. Um, it, things really could not could not be worse. Um, but I think in the early days of this thing, which wasn't all that long ago, um, you know, I, I think people were doing the right thing because they saw that there was a direct connection between the guidance that they were being given um, and and the results. Right? I think I think we were we were really only able to, to stem the spread in March and April because the public really trusted the guidance that was coming from the mayor and the governor, and the justification for staying home was very clear. I think now that the curve has been flattened and the cases are dramatically down, and people have been cooped up inside for a long time, people. People are starting to unravel as human beings do, um, and and while uh, restlessness may not be a, a metric that is recognized by the CDC, it's a reality. And you know, you, you see it on the streets. You see, you know, you see more traffic on the roads. You see people hanging out outside bars. You see people going to beaches. Don't even know if they're open or not. The, the just say no approach is just is just not sustainable. And expecting people to completely avoid human contact indefinitely is just not realistic. So now that we've gotten to a place where we've flattened the curve and things are heading in the right direction, uh, look, at the same time, I think we have to, we have to really buckle up for, for the, in the long haul here on social distancing, but we've got to provide some new guidance. You know, I think we're in a new moment now, and I think that this moment requires new guidance. The guidance that we were given three months ago at the height of this thing um, doesn't make sense for what's happening right now. Uh, and that goes for the essential, non-essential categories for our businesses. Uh, it goes from across the board. So I think people are people want to do the right thing, but, but you need to give them clear guidance. Once you start, once they start hearing 10 different things from 10 different people, you're going to lose the crowd. And I'm worried that that's, that's where we are right now, especially as, as summer comes, um, you know, as, as the, the, the clock starts ticking on a lot of the unemployment stuff and the temporary relief measures that, that do exist. Um, you know, it's not just going to be the restless that start uh, ignoring the guidance. It's, it's going to be everybody. So this is a moment that we really need to hit the reset button. I'm trying to put away my other phone. Realize I left it on. Sorry about that. Uh, <laughs> between the other phone and my dogs, not like what I saw in Central Park. I put them in another room and they're sitting in there right now. Um, right on. So 
Uh, yeah, there's lots of noise. I live across from a park, and I have to tell you, it's been a little disconcerting, As I, and I've seen this. You are right. People are getting restless. They're out on the streets. I'm seeing more people walking in smaller groups, many not wearing masks, and it, and it has been a bit surprising. There's There's been the debate over even beach usage. Uh, you know, where there were, you know, there were the warnings, you know, New York City residents don't come to our beaches outside, you know, outside of New York City. What message does that send when you're hearing other jurisdictions say that? Well, all this, all this stuff is crazy. I mean, there was a moment when we were being told that the tri-state area was going to open up in unison, right? That, that Connecticut, New, uh, New Jersey, and New York were all going to do everything in lockstep. That's clearly out the window, right? So now we've started opening up in regions. You know, now we're talking about counties, and now you have Staten Island wants to open up on their own, going borough by borough. Soon we're going to be going block by block, roommate by roommate. You know, so the, the, the place that we're in right now, look, I don't know if – this lull is just the calm before the next storm in terms of a second wave. I don't think anybody knows that for sure. What I do know is that this moment really calls for some simple and clear guidance um, because we're not on the same page anymore. And I think in a time like this, mixed messages kill. Um, and, and especially as we head into the summer in the beaches, people, unless you have a soldier standing with a machine gun outside the beach, people are going to go to the beaches whether you say that they're officially closed or not. So there needs to be clear guidelines and there needs to be a plan to keep New Yorkers safe. Um, you know, look, what, what I've been saying is there may not be a playbook for what we're dealing with right now, um, but for the past three months, people have really only been told how to survive, right? And now people need to be told how to live. And that's what we need to get, get, at, get after. And do you think the mayor is appropriately conveying that about how to live once again? And, and you know, I'm curious if you feel he's made any missteps recently or you've been satisfied with his approach. I mean, I think it's it's always tough with this, this, the city and the state stuff, you know, and, and I think, you know, what's the saying? When, when the elephants fight, the, the grass is the one that gets hurt, right? So, you know, whether it was the back and forth about the school closures or whatever it may be, people just want clear direction, and they want to understand, you know, they want to be rewarded for their progress, too. When you see the numbers going down from a point when we, we were dealing with hundreds and hundreds of people dying every day, which was awful, now we're down to under 100 people dying a day. Still horrible, still unimaginable. But the guidance that was there uh, for that moment just doesn't make sense anymore. And I think that if you want to sustain uh, people being safe, um, you need to give them some clear guidance. And and, that, and especially, you know, hearing from small businesses when. Uh, you know, you could walk into a Walmart or a Target that's open right now and buy the same exact products that are currently for sale inside a shuttered small business. It doesn't make any sense. And that all adds up because people are, are, are they want to get back to work. They want to provide for their families. They can't hang on anymore. They're hanging on by their fingernails. But it's got to be done safely, right? We can't just flip a switch and say, okay, everybody go back to work. But people need to see that we're actively working towards the reopening. Opening, that we're going to have a plan for when the metrics get to where they, they've got to be, that we're ready to go to put people back to work safely, open up our restaurants and our bars in a safe way um, to, 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 to get things moving again. So I, I do want to bring up something I, I saw you had weighed in on about the uh, for hire drivers that were employed by the city to deliver food to a number of vulnerable New Yorkers who were uh, facing some uh, some issues. They were getting ticketed. What was your concern? How did this come to your attention? 
So we have um, we have a site. Um, it's just that it's on the other. Uh, I share 18th Avenue, which is one of my my favorite avenues um, here in Brooklyn with with my colleague Councilman Mark Traeger. Um, on his side of 18th Avenue, there is a Salvation Army that's doing a big. Uh, they're a Get Food NYC um, site distribution site. So you know every morning um, you have hundreds and hundreds of, of TLC cars lining up outside to pick up the deliveries to deliver through all throughout the city. And I had started hearing from delivery drivers who um, were getting, were either getting tickets for double parking or were afraid to get a ticket for double parking. And what they were doing was they were, they were forced to leave these meals in the lobby um, of the folks who were, who were receiving the meals, which defeats the whole purpose of this program, which is to deliver food literally door to door to folks who need it, to, to people who are vulnerable to COVID and who are food insecure. Um, so the fact you know this is this is a typical situation of bureaucracy where one side of the building is just not talking to the other side of the building where you've got <clears throat> out of work TLC drivers who are who are make who are running this program right without them we wouldn't be able to do this program a great program delivering food to to, to food insecure New Yorkers who are then getting parking tickets because they were double parked trying to deliver the food so you have the city employing these guys to do this great work and now they're banging them overhead with a parking ticket they're probably knocks out half of their pay for that day. Um, so TLC was great. I mean, they, they right away acknowledged, you know, they responded to the issue. Um, I'd like to see it codified in a way for as long as this program is happening, that we give these guys the, the, the rights that commercial drivers do um, so that they wouldn't get these tickets because, you know, finding a parking spot to go deliver food when you have to deliver 100 meals is, is not really realistic. Um, but for now, it looks like we fixed the problem, but we're going to have to stay vigilant on it because I, I, these guys are, are struggling as it is. The last thing I want them is to, is to come home with parking tickets. So uh, we're getting into warmer weather. In fact, today feels like the first day uh, that I would have turned on the air conditioning and I didn't. Uh, and I'm going to ask you a question that's going to cost me some trouble on the home front, but it will also determine whether my husband's in the other room and listening to the show tonight. Uh, because he works for Con Edison. So you're, we're heading into the summer. And at a recent right. uh, City Council Consumer Affairs Committee hearing, you were concerned about whether con, uh, about the Con Edison rate increase, but also the added stress on the power grid as more people stay home. Were you comforted by what you heard? Are you concerned about this summer? <laughs> I don't think I've ever had a conversation with Con Ed where I've been comforted. Um, you know, I think, look, I, I pushed really hard to get the mayor to address the summer heat issue now, um, and, and he did so by enacting the um, his plan to provide uh, a lot of seniors and low-income New Yorkers with air conditioners, which was much much needed, um, you know, for the for the summer when you're going to have more folks who are going to be you know staying inside, um, because the same vulnerable communities that have been ravaged by COVID will be at risk again this summer if we don't provide them with access to air conditioning in, in another long hot summer of extreme heat. Con Ed. And City Hall doesn't seem too worried, um, but to be honest, I, I never really hear them worried. Um, you know, my concern is that in my district uh, and a lot of districts in the outer boroughs where we still have overhead power lines, our power goes out here reliably at least once a summer, and that's on an average summer when most, you know, a lot of people are on vacation um, and we're not in the, you know, pandemic that we're in right now, right? And, th and that's on an average summer. So my concern is if you're going to be hand if you're going to be distributing air conditioners to folks who need it, and it's a great program, what have we done to make sure that our power grid can handle this? 
Con Ed seems to say that they do have it handled, um, that, that there's nothing to worry about. We're going to have to trust but verify. You know, we're going to have to stay vigilant on that because it's, it's a big concern. I mean, you, you know, last summer, you know, famously the power went out in midtown Manhattan. It made national news, made global news, I think, at that point. That kind of stuff happens in the outer boroughs every summer, and you're lucky if you get a write-up in the local newspaper about it. So it's a real, real serious concern. We had an almost six-hour hearing about it. Um, you know, and it's one of those it's one of those issues that intersects with environmental justice and and you know the, the heat related deaths and and that we've been trying to get a hold of the, the data on for a very very long time, um, and it's it's we're heading into unknown territory with this summer, so uh, we want to be sure we're prepared, um, and we're going to have to stay on top of them to make sure that we are. And, and you know, look, all this stuff comes down to trying to be proactive instead of reactive. You know, when the power goes out. Um, Con Ed is usually great, and they're, they're out here, and they fix it, and they get the power up and running. But I, I want to prevent that from happening in the first place. I don't want to get to a point where the power is out, and we've got people who are home, you know, sheltering at home um, and sweltering. You know? So it's, it's a real concern, and it's not something that we're going we're gonna to give up on yet. So we've got just about a minute or two left, and uh, I've been asking all my guests this, and things evolve over time. And you know, I, when I had you on the show last, uh, I think it was maybe three or four months ago. I mean, it was you know, when we were hearing about this, where it really didn't impact uh, New York City yet that we were aware of. How have you been affected, and how have you been impacted by this? Because everyone I talk with knows someone, has someone in their life that's been uh, that's tested positive or has passed away. How have you been touched by the pandemic? You know, I've I've lost a couple of friends. Um, you know, I, I have people all around me who who have lost people, or loved ones. Um, a lot of people in my neighborhood, a lot of very very good people in my neighborhood in my district. Um, and it's just look, as an elected official, who you're always trying to, you know, keep up a united front for your constituents to make sure that that they have everything that they need, you know, in a time like this. It's like, the, you know, the captain goes down with the ship kind of thing. But you're also dealing with it in your own personal way. You know, my wife is a small business owner, um, you know, and, and she's struggling and doesn't know, you know, she's had a business that she's built for 10 years. We don't know if it, it can survive. Um, and, and dealing with death and, and, and sickness all around you, it's, it's, it's surreal. It's, it's absolutely brutal, you know, and I think that for local elected officials at a time like this where we unfortunately, you know, don't have the jurisdiction to make a lot of these big policy calls, it, we have to get creative. You know, we don't have buckets of money to hand out to small businesses or to, to, to renters, you know, so we have to get creative with policy. And the city council is, is really trying to do that. You know, I think um, trying to hammer down on stuff, whether it's, it's stuff like, you know, hammering down on the, on the food delivery app, the fees that they charge, um, you know, restaurants for deliveries at a time like this to, trying to figure out some sort of assistance for, for renters, for trying to figure out something for property taxes. Um, and you look, and you can't ignore the socioeconomic and the, the racial and the class, all these disparities that have just been further exacerbated by this crisis that are now just laid bare, you know, and can no longer be ignored. So you try to kind of put aside your own personal struggles and your own whatever you're dealing with personally. You know, when I come to the office and I try to help as many people as we can and dealing with 
40 or 50 people per day who are still waiting to get unemployment checks. Um, you know, it, this is, this is a, it's, it's a real struggle for a lot of people. So you kind of put your own personal stuff aside to do your job, to help as many people as you can. And then when you get home, you try to deal with your own, you know, you talk to your mom and your wife and see how they're doing, you know? Yeah, it's, it is one of those times I'm hearing from a lot of friends who are dealing with this as well. I want to thank you, uh, Councilman, for being back on the show. If people uh, have enjoyed the conversation or they want to learn more about you and your initiatives, uh, please let us know. T uh, tell our listeners where they can go to learn more about you. Sure. So I'm, you know, I'm on, I guess social media is the easiest place. You know, Facebook, Twitter, Justin Brandon, I'm on there. You'll find me somewhere. Just Google me and I'm always you know, making noise about something or other, trying to do my best to fight for uh, working class, middle class New Yorkers and people who are trying to get to the middle class and people who are living paycheck to paycheck, you know. And, and I do want to encourage if people go to look for you on Twitter, uh, to scroll down your Twitter feed and please look for that video if they're not sure whether they should wear a mask. <laughs> it's just it's just so simple. It was just like guys, let's just, it's, it's this isn't brain surgery, you know. Put on a mask because you protect other people, you know. But it's about shared sacrifice, and that's the only way we're going to get through this thing. Councilman, thanks so much for joining me here on WBAI today. Right on. Thanks for having me, man. Take care. Thank you. So uh, you were just listening to my interview with New York City Council Member uh, Justin Brannan here on WBAI 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Uh, just a brief, uh, briefly in the news today, if you hadn't heard the mayor, Bill de Blasio, called for the passage of state legislation uh, that gives the city a backup option to pay its bills in case federal lawmakers do not provide aid to cover expenses related to the pandemic. This legislation would let the city borrow and whether, you know, borrowing is a big debate right now, borrow as much as $7 billion, which the city could then pay over uh, the next three decades. Uh, I mean, as the council member mentioned, as the senator had mentioned, the city's facing a, a significant shortfall of about $9 billion for this current fiscal year. And then and the next one, which starts in just a few weeks on July 1st, New York City Council and the mayor obviously are going to be uh, discussing, it's a nice word, discussing, debating over the next few weeks what gets cut. Uh, we'll, we'll look and see if the summer youth employment program is one of them because that's received uh, a lot of pushback when the administration said that they would be cutting that. So in addition to that, what I've been dealing with lately is seeing and hearing from a, no a number of nonprofits that are getting cut, that as a result of a lack of, uh, of financial support uh, and the inability to keep their doors open, they're not able to continue their programs, they're laying off staff, uh, uh, some of them are indicating they may not be around after this pandemic. So I've been talking to a number of elected officials and asking them if they could submit, give me uh, just a message for some of the uh, uh, about what the nonprofits are going through. And uh, I got some from uh, New York City Controller Scott Stringer and Congressman Greg Meeks. And uh, Reggie, could you play those now? On safety, the rules are to allow us to keep reopening. Oh, no, not so that.
I'm sorry. <laughs> okay. I'm sorry. What, what, what was those clips again? I was doing a couple of things at once there. I apologize we, for that. We always, on BAI, we multitask. That's perfectly yeah. fine. If you want to play, actually, if you want to play the mayor's comments, I'm perfectly fine with that. This is from the mayor's press conference today about us reopening. Okay. Here we go. Nope. That's not it. That is not it. <laughs> sorry. That is not it. All right. So I had it. I didn't have it. Okay, let me... Oh, here it is. Okay, here we go. The rules are for everyone's safety. The rules are to allow us to keep reopening. So there's a lot of willingness to work with the rules, a lot of understanding. You know, Rome wasn't built in a day. It's going to take time to figure this out. But businesses want to reopen. Uh, the people who work at their businesses want to come back People are ready for this, but they need to know it will be safe. So actually what I see is a lot of people moving in the same direction, wanting to restart, wanting to do it the right way. But of course, the question is, what does it really look like on the ground? So these guidelines are a great starting point. First of all, they tell us what we need to know about which industries, construction, all the construction that's not going on now, that restarts, manufacturing restarts, wholesale work restarts and retail that hasn't been in that essential category. So we know what essential has been. It's been pharmacies, grocery stores, supermarkets. But now we're talking about a whole range of other retail, clothing stores, office supply stores, furniture stores, you name it, but restricted to curbside pickup or in-store pickup. That means not wandering the aisles, shopping or lingering or comparing things, but, you know, placing an order and coming and getting it so it's a quick transaction with limited contact between people. Okay. One thing businesses do is they adapt, they create, they move with the times, they move with new conditions. That's the nature of business. Our small businesses know that better than anyone. So I am convinced our business community will work it out, but now I think it's important that their city government give them a helping hand. So I want to talk about the ways that we're going to help and also the ways that we have to make sure the rules are followed. So overwhelmingly, we're talking about helping, clarifying, educating, providing information, providing pointers. We will obviously do enforcement if we see problems. The first goal is always with a light touch to remind, to point the right way. If we see uh, any company that's persistently breaking the rules, we can take more aggressive action. But I don't think you're going to see a lot of that. We haven't been seeing that in this city overwhelmingly across the board. And we need to see more proactive leadership and a more proactive vision for what the future of our city is going to look like coming out of this. So much of the last 11 weeks has been triage, has been trying to save lives, build hospital capacity, get personal protective equipment, and understandably, that takes up an enormous amount of time. But this administration has a big staff. They have a lot of people. They have a lot of folks that are working on this. I know that Craig Bishop, the former SBS commissioner, is now a senior advisor to the mayor, and they hired someone else to be at SBS. They have a lot of people that are working on these issues. We want to see a proactive plan and vision from them on what the city looks like, not just as it relates to uh, streetscape and uh, sidewalks for restaurants. We want that for transportation. What does mass transit look like coming out of this? We want to see that 
as it relates to what schools will look like potentially in the fall. We want to see that on what parks are going to look like and playgrounds once they can potentially reopen. We want to see a proactive vision for what the city's going to look like until we have a vaccine where we're still going to have social distancing in effect. We're still going to have mandatory mask wearing, but we are going to need to resume our life in some way. Uh, you can't be, uh, you, you can't have these restaurants and bars closed forever. You can't have school closed forever. We of course need to follow the guidance of public health officials, but we need to use their expertise coupled with a vision for the future of New York city And that was New York City Council Speaker Corey Johnson following remarks from Mayor Bill de Blasio. You're listening to an extended Driving Forces until 6.30 tonight. I'll let Reggie take it away. Corey Johnson, also Council Member Antonio Reynoso and Council Members, announced that the City Council will introduce... For WBAI New York, I'm Linda Perry with these news headlines. Today, New York City Council Speaker Corey Johnson, also Council Member Antonio Reynoso and Council Members, announced that the City Council will introduce legislation requiring the opening up of spaces throughout the five boroughs for outdoor dining amid this pandemic. Manhattan Borough President Gail Brewer says laws are necessary to guide the reopening. Well, I think it's always good to have a law because um, the mayor could, and he probably will, with the OT, get around to doing some of these uh, innovative ways of working with the restaurants. But having it in a actual legal is important, I think, for the second reason which is I've been working with all of our 12 community boards, as you know, during this entire pandemic. They all have Zoom, they meet, et cetera. And you do get those who are complaining because they are concerned about the noise and the after effects that we've all experienced for many years regarding outdoor cafes. So if it's a law, then we have a better chance of working with those who are understandably have issues to say that's a law, let's work together. We want to save our small businesses. So I think there are actually two reasons to make sure that the law is passed. We need a law and we need to have some criteria with which to work so that we can, in fact, deal with concerns that might come up. Speaker Corey Johnson says we need to see a more proactive vision for what the city is going to look like coming out of this pandemic. So much of the last 11 weeks has been triage, has been trying to save lives, build hospital capacity, get personal protective equipment, and understandably, that takes up an enormous amount of time. But this administration has a big staff. They have a lot of people. They have a lot of folks that are working on this. I know that Craig Bishop, the former SBS commissioner, is now a senior advisor to the mayor, and they hired someone else to be at SBS. They have a lot of people that are working on these issues. We want to see a proactive plan and vision from them on what the city looks like, not just as it relates to uh, streetscape and Uh, sidewalks for restaurants. We want that for transportation. What does mass transit look like coming out of this? We want to see that as it relates to what schools will look like potentially in the fall. We want to see that on what parks are going to look like and playgrounds once they can potentially reopen. We want to see a proactive vision 
for what the city's going to look like until we have a vaccine where we're still going to have social distancing in effect, we're still going to have mandatory mask wearing, but we are going to need to resume our life in some way. Uh, you can't be, uh, you, you can't have these restaurants and bars closed forever. You can't have school closed forever. We, of course, need to follow the guidance of public health officials, but we need to use their expertise coupled with a vision for the future of New York City to be able to get us out of this. And and we haven't seen that at this point. And the speaker explains the metrics and timeline for reopening with the city in coordination with New York State. The metrics that we've been using on reopening have been determined by the governor and they have the dashboard on the New York State website that has the seven metrics. New York City has met five of those metrics. The final two that we have not met at this moment are hospital capacity, bed capacity, where the metric says we need to be at 30%, we're at 28%, so we're almost there. And the final metric is on contact tracing, having enough contact tracers uh, per capita of the population. And I think we will be there in the next couple of weeks, given the number of contact tracers that are being hired and then are starting on June 1st, which is just in the next few days. So that will allow us to get into phase one, but the actual uh, sequencing from phase one into phase two and into phase three, those are discussions that are happening with the governor and the mayor's office through the emergency orders that were enacted at the beginning and middle of March. New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio in his COVID briefing today was not specific about the date for reopening in the city. It depends on the metrics and preparedness, but he says phase one begins next week or in two weeks. It includes restarts for construction, manufacturing, wholesale work, and retail, which hasn't been in the essential category with curbside or in-store pickups. de Blasio says the plan is for schools to reopen on September 10th. Linda Perry, WBAI News, New York. And welcome back to an extended driving forces. Usually you would hear Paul DiRienzo. He is off today, and that was Linda Perry. I'm your host, Jeff Simmons. And in this half hour, I'll be bringing you a little recap of the news later in the show. Uh, but there was something that yesterday uh, I had initially, I read when I heard the news, and I've just been absorbing all the news about it, which is the death of Larry Kramer. I mean, we are surrounded so much right now uh, by death uh, or amid the pandemic. And with each obit, you know, you may become immune uh, or becoming immune to all of this, uh, but there are a number of individuals who have reshaped our lives over decades, and everyone has a story. So just this week, we learned of the passing of Larry Kramer. Uh, you may know him because he was an Oscar-nominated screenwriter, playwright, author, or you may know of him because of his, his role as a trailblazing gay rights activist. His advocacy led to a shift in national health policy in the 80s and 90s. He was 84 years old and died of, uh, of pneumonia. Uh, he's been described as being uninhibited, polarizing, vocal, passionate, controversial. There are just so many adjectives that would describe Larry Kramer. Uh, he did make an indelible mark on, on gay history. So who better to talk about his life and legacy than Eric Marcus, the author of Making Gay History? Eric is the author of a dozen books, including two editions of Making Gay History, uh, Why Suicide and Breaking the Service, which was a number one New York Times bestseller about Olympic diving champion Greg Luganis. Eric is also the co-producer 
of those who were there, a podcast drawn from the Fortunoff Video Archive uh, for Holocaust Testimonies, and he is the founder and chair of the Stonewall 50 Consortium. Uh, he joins me now. Welcome back to WBAI. Hi, Jeff. I'm so glad to be with you. We just finished work on an episode of the Making Gay History podcast that features a conversation I had with, uh, with Larry in 1989, um, which interestingly focused a lot on his thoughts about legacy because he was told at that time that he had three years to live. Um, he was HIV positive and much of his liver had been destroyed by uh, the hepatitis B virus, but he lived a lot longer. And I'm glad you started off that way because that's where I was going to go to. You had an interview <laughs> with him. This was this was a, 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 a really uh, interesting interview. Talk a little about, you know, take us through the setting and the interview and what he was like during that because I want people sure. then afterwards to go and listen to this. Well, people, most people are familiar with Larry Kramer. Those who are familiar with him are familiar uh, from him as a as a fierce AIDS uh, advocate um, during the 80s and 90s. Um, and very outspoken. Um, uh, he tended to burn things to, to the ground, including relationships um, and, and um, with friends and, and colleagues. He he was his own worst enemy in some ways. That he that he, um, as my grandmother would say, but she would have said it in Yiddish. What's on the lung is on the tongue. And he believed in saying, and it sounds better in Yiddish. And, and I was planning before our call to practice the Yiddish, but I got busy on the episode and I didn't get a chance to do that. So when I went to interview Larry, I was expecting this firebrand, uh, ill-tempered, really cranky guy who I'd gotten to know from news reports, um, something that actually served him really well in breaking through and making clear that we had, a, in the early 80s, that the AIDS crisis was something to take seriously. Um, but the guy who greeted me at the door was this very sweet man, and we had this lovely conversation. I just listened to the episode today. I haven't listened to that tape in a while. And I was surprised by how much fun I was having in the conversation with him. It was just this lovely, convivial visit. Um, and then somehow, I don't know how this happened, uh, that following summer in 1989, I had lunch with Larry and my mother. Um, I don't know how my mother managed to convince me to do that. <laughs> um, and the two of them were from the same generation. You know, they were two Jewish troublemakers. My mother was, um, she, they're no longer living, so I can say this about both Larry and my mother. They were, they were nar narcissists. Um, Larry got a lot done, given all the, 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 the challenges he had dealing with himself. But I watched the two people who, who uh, these two people who were very focused on themselves, really enjoy each other. And I got, to, I got to witness them. I got to listen to them talk with each other about their lives. Um, that was the last time I had the chance to visit with Larry one-on-one. Uh, -on -one. You know, there was something that uh, in your book you had noted that uh, I, I want to pull this one line uh, that Larry had said. While I've done a lot of things that in retrospect can now be seen as activism, I didn't consider them activism at the time. Can you talk a little about that? Yeah, well, you know, I think what he was alluding to there is something I only learned recently, that um, before he became an activist, um, years before, he was trying to get, um, uh, there was a letter that I read, one of my friends is working on his biography now, it was a letter he'd written to one of the major magazines saying that they needed to allow him to write a column about what gay life was really like, what gay people were really like, and that was in the 70s. Um, so I think a lot of what he did, he didn't think of himself as an activist, he didn't want to associate with activists, he thought of them as the great unwashed, he would watch um, reports on the gay pride march, the early marches, and he wanted nothing to do with it. He wanted to be with, with the fancy crowd, the, uh, the gay A-list crowd, and the activists he thought of as, uh, as the great unwashed. 
Um, but as he saw his friends dying in the early 80s, he was motivated to um, take the lead. Uh, the tragedy in some ways, and he says this in the interview, he was not the kind of person who could really be a leader. He could um, announce the crisis and lead the charge, but he was too um, hot-tempered and divisive to be able to be the leader that was needed. And he felt that was one of his big, actually his biggest failure in life. In, in your conversation with him, did you find him to be humble? Yes. Um, yeah, he was um, he was lovely and and humble, and he was very um, self reflective. Um, he knew himself, um, but he also couldn't help himself. He would say things sometimes that were just really got him into trouble and um, made it made life more difficult for himself and made it impossible for him to be the person he wanted to be. All of that said, um, his legacy is enormous. Um, he helped change the healthcare system. Um, he helped change how we view testing and how we deal with testing of new drugs. Um, and he um, gave an example, provided a roadmap to other people who are fighting for, uh, uh, for better research, for better drugs, for people who had cancer, for other illnesses. Um, he laid, laid out a roadmap for how to do it, how to fight the government and get things moving more quickly. Um, and we can see that legacy today, even with this, uh, this current pandemic. And it's interesting you uh, segue there because what's also been crossing my mind is that uh, he, back then, had uh, a lot of friction with Anthony, I never say this right, Fauci, uh, yeah. in the early years of AIDS. And every time I would see Anthony Fauci on television now, I'm thinking, you know, I remember him then. Uh, talk about what that relate that dynamic was like. Well, I just saw a quote from, from Anthony Fauci saying that he loved Larry. Um, um, but they were also they were they were frenemies. They were adversaries, and they were partners in fighting the uh, uh, during the AIDS crisis. Um, what people who who didn't live through the crisis don't remember is that it was a very slow moving um, uh, crisis that was not viewed as a crisis by the larger population because uh, it affected principally uh, gay men um, and then also people of color, and um, and it wasn't thought to be a mainstream problem. So Larry had to yell pretty loudly, and one of his adversaries was, was Anthony Fauci, because things were not moving quickly enough um, um, at the CDC uh, for, to, to save people who were dying. Um, so he really, Larry really shook up the, the establishment, but he also needed them. Uh, so, so they became allies in the fight. Was there one uh, was there one moment during your uh, interview that uh, and we'll get to in a few moments a little bro more broadly who else you've you've talked with over the years for making gay history but was there one moment during that interview that stands out most to you? Yes, when he it was when he was talking about his experience of of being at Yale as a young man and trying to kill himself um, and how deeply unhappy he was and. Uh, what a challenge it was for someone of his generation, he's 20 years older than I am, 22 years older, um, for someone of his generation, the generation that was told, if you go to, psych to a psychiatrist, um, you, if you're a homosexual, you need to go to a, psych a psychiatrist so they'll, they'll cure you. And it took him years for him uh, to accept himself. Um, and in those early years, he tried to kill himself. He was so unhappy. Um, and then he reflected on how 30 years later he went back to Yale in the very place that he was, he had been so unhappy and alone. He was surrounded by people at a gay dance and he couldn't believe it was the same place. Um, and what's also interesting to me is he was only in his 50s when I interviewed him, um, younger than I am now. Uh, reflecting back on, on 30 years prior when he was at Yale, I'm about to have my 40th college reunion, um, obviously <laughs> virtual at the moment. Um, but I reflect back 40 years now on how alone I was as a freshman at Vassar College 
um, and how um, I really, I was so unhappy I wanted to die. So in some ways, I really could relate to Larry's um, experience of that isolation, even though I, I grew up 20 years after he did. So Making Gay History, talk a yeah. little about, and what I really enjoy about this, and, uh, and we'll get to, actually I should say before I go to it, what's the, uh, what's the website address that people should go to if they're curious right now, and we'll come back to it as well. Sure. MakingGayHistory.com. That's our main website for the podcast. And you can also download the podcast through all the regular platforms for so podcasts. I, we'll have, and we'll have Larry Kramer's episode up first thing in the morning. And, so if and people subscribe... Find, sorry, what I find sorry. very Oh, no, it's okay. What I find very interesting is that, you know, I am a little behind you, just a few years behind you in age. And so what was interesting to me, and I looked at these some of these last year as well when you were on uh, during... Uh, my Pride special on WBAI, um, you know, younger folks might not have known about all of the uh, all of the people who you had interviewed and their stories and their legacies. Talk a little about the diversity of people who participated in this. Sure. I didn't know the history when I started work on the book in 1988. I was commissioned to write an oral history of what was then called the gay and lesbian civil rights movement. I thought the history began in 1969 with the Stonewall Uprising. And it turned out there was 19 years of history in the U.S. prior to that, actually more than that, um, uh, really beginning around the end of World War II, and that the first gay rights organization in the world was founded in 1897 in Germany, in Berlin. Um, and I was mad when I found that out and, and discovered that there was this long history. And it was it was early enough in 1988 that I could actually interview the people who were there at the very beginning of the movement in the U.S. They were all, almost all still alive. Um, they were old, um, but most were still alive. And the other challenge was a lot of a lot of the gay men I wanted to interview had AIDS, so I had to work very quickly to get their stories recorded. But most of the people I interviewed were, were regular folks, and that's one of the things I hope people take away from the podcast is that you don't have to be special to make a difference in the world, and you don't have to do something monumental like Larry to change the course of the history. Often it was just one-on-one -on -one things that people did um, in their lives. Um, and uh, one of the joys for me has been able to share these, has been to share these stories that I was able uh, to record 30 years ago, more than 30 years ago now. And, you know, coming up uh, this coming Monday is the start of Pride Month. It's a different world. Yeah. Uh, you know, I had been working on a magazine piece and talking with some of the organizations across the United States about how they're going to be celebrating. And nearly all are, well, parades are all canceled, but some have been even postponed. It's virtual. What do you think? How would you think we're going to look back at this period? Um, you know, in, in the context of gay history, I mean, you know, it, it's so interesting because this was the month where always, you know, you'd participate in parties. You found community for yeah, kids who yeah. were a little reluctant to come out. This was their chance to say I could step out. How do you think we'll look back at this period? I don't know. You know, one of the things we, we do, that, that, that I think is very uh, similar to what happened with AIDS, we didn't know how things would turn out during the AIDS crisis. We couldn't look ahead that far. We can look back now. It was started 40 years ago, that epidemic, and have a sense of, of how the world changed after. It certainly wasn't the same world after as it was before, especially for gay people. And so we don't know what the world is going to look like on the other side or how we will look back in, on this period and what pride was like during this moment. What I'm impressed by is how... Um, people have very quickly recalibrated and how versatile everyone is. And I keep getting messages about all of these virtual pride programs, um, several of which I'll be participating in. And who knows how it's going to look to people. And maybe in some ways 
it's better because more people can participate, especially people who are not able to be to be out or live in places where they are. Uh, they live in countries where it's not okay to be gay, but they're able to participate in Pride in a way they might not have um, have it otherwise. I might also add that this year is the 50th anniversary of the first Pride March in New York City. Um, and you may think that New York City had the first Pride March, but we didn't. Chicago beat us by one day. Yeah, and uh, I know that global Pride activities are happening the last week of this month. I'm trying to remember if the date was the 27th or 28th, uh, but you know they're, they uh, they're hoping to make it an, you know, an international global event. I yeah. do want to. We've got got just a minute or two left, and yeah. I'm going to segue to a topic you're not prepared for. Um, I read about you in the New York Daily News. <laughs> that, that you this was just this week um yeah. you know tell our listeners a little about how you have adapted to this new world and why you got a level of acclaim in the daily news this week yeah it was a full page right after a, a spread about uh, joe biden and donald trump it was really quite <laughs> it was quite mind-blowing um i produce a twice a week neighborhood newsletter um, it started out just as letting people know. So I, I, I help run my block association, and I, we take care of the trees on our block. It's one block in New York City, the 300 block of West 20th Street. And um, I send out uh, a newsletter sporadically, but suddenly we have this crisis, and people didn't know where to shop. We didn't know what was going on. And so I wound up sending out a, a few news, newsletters, and it morphed into, for a while, it was seven days a week as, as, as the news rolled in. And now it's twice a week, and I, I have lots of reporters. Young, I, I call them my cub reporters, <laughs> mostly people in their 60s and 70s who are my eyes on the street. And, uh, and that's how it happened. Um, so it's a very personal newsletter, um, and that's why the, the, the Daily News decided to do a story about how, uh, how, I, how I've gotten involved. It's the least I can do, and because I'm over 60, I'm not supposed to be out there. I don't want to be one of those people occupying a hospital bed that somebody else should be occupying. So, um, so by staying home and being a reporter, uh, which is what my training is in, um, and editor, I've gotten to produce this little newsletter. I call it the hyperlocal newsletter. And in addition to the newsletter, what is next for you? Oh my! Well, we're just finishing up this special COVID nineteen season of the Making Gay History. We've done um, a dozen episodes. We're producing a, another season of the podcast in the fall, and then a year from now, we're doing a special aid season. Um, actually a very personal season reflecting on my own experiences and drawing from my archive and other places as well. Um, and I'm producing, just starting production of another season of the Holocaust podcast that I do. So it's, it's very busy. Um, and, and Eric, if people want to learn more about you and once again, if they want to listen to Larry Kramer's podcast when it's uh, online tomorrow, I think, uh, yeah. where can they, where can they go? Best place is makinggayhistory.com. That's makinggayhistory.com. Eric Marcus, thank you so much for joining me here on WBAI today. It was a pleasure, Jeff. I look forward to the next time. And thank happy you. Pride. Happy Pride. So I want to thank you uh, for tuning in to WBAI 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. I'm your host, Jeff Simmons. Paul D. Ranzo has been off today. Uh, I would like to thank my guests. That was just Eric Marcus, founder and host of Making Gay History. We talked about Larry Kramer. Also want to thank New York State Senator Andrew Gennardis and New York City Council Member Justin Brannon for appearing in the first hour of the show. And again, thank you, Reggie Johnson, for making all these shows as best as possible. I will be back this Sunday at 6 o'clock uh, with City Watch when I will have on... Uh, New Yorkers for Parks, and also the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan, and my colleague David Brand spoke with the SBS Commissioner Janelle Doris. Have a great day.